Well, hey, good morning. I uh, know most of you, but in case I haven't met someone, my name is Matt Campbell, one of the leaders here. I uh, would love to meet you afterward. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to close out Exodus 15. Uh, it's kind of fun to stay in chapters for multiple weeks because you get to see different things. Um, and we talked last week about the Song of the Sea. If you weren't here last week, it was basically the first three quarters of Exodus 15. Uh, go podcast it or get on our YouTube and subscribe to those so you can't miss them. Um, but it's really cool to see Moses kind of take charge after this incredible experience of God freeing his people from Egypt, from slavery, walking them across dry land through a sea uh, to a place where then they get to turn around and watch their, their pursuers, their captors, their enslavers of Egypt crushed by the water. And then they got to just sing worship and praise to their um, God and often to us as readers and to people that are in the moment, what feels like a conclusion, what feels like a destination spot, what feels like we did it, we made it, we got freed from Egypt, we're free, also usually is the beginning of something, like just the very beginning of what God has in store. Um, I've known a few people in my life um, that really, really badly wanted to get married. You know, these people, like, they just want so badly um, to get married. And what happens is when they date their potential spouse, the dates are super awesome, right? Like, the dates are so extravagant. So much money is spent. Pull out all the stops. Like, it's just a total Pinterest date. It's just perfect, right? And all stuff. And the goal is to get married. And then you get to the wedding, and there's a wedding. You did it. The goal is done. There's a ceremony. It's a party. Friends are there. Everyone's having fun. Cake is smashed in faces, all this kind of stuff. Um, and, but then what starts? Like the marriage, right? And like, there, have we done enough to actually foundation for the marriage? And often when the focus is just the wedding, the marriages often don't thrive and sometimes often don't survive. Well, the Exodus story, as uh, just a little analogy, the Exodus story is similarly very intentional, right? The moment we're in right now is a conclusion. They did it. They are set free from their bondage in Egypt, but it's also the incredible small beginning of something much, much, much larger. So God, God not only saved them from Egypt, but now he saved them for a whole new way of life. So remember, this story was written by Moses as he looks back on their life. Some of it during his journey he actually wrote, but mostly afterward. And he has different perspectives looking back as he did when he was in the moment. We aren't told how long the Israelites camped on the Red Sea looking out over the waters. I would imagine it's, it would probably have been hard to leave because in that moment they were so freed and they felt so good. What's interesting, the NIV translates verse 22 says, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. But we, we typically use the ESV, the English Standard Version Bible here. We just like that translation. Its translation I kind of like more. Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if the literal Hebrew translation is, I like, it's like herding cats, you know? Like, I'm like, come on, guys, we gotta go, finally. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. Okay, now this is cool. Go back with me, just in your head, you don't have to turn there, but to Ex Exodus chapter 2, you can if you want to, where we found Moses to be a 40-ish-year-old man who grew up as an Egyptian, but had felt different his whole life. He saw injustice happening, remember the Egyptian was beating up on the Israelite, 
and he took justice into his own hands, killed the Egyptian slaver, and not knowing what to do next, he fled. Okay, this is chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Okay, so keep that in mind, land of Midian, he kind of ran away. This is where Moses met his wife, and her, da- and her dad, his father-in-law, was the priest of Midian. And then we're told in chapter 3, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Okay, Moses, out there, away from the land, out there as a shepherd. He's a shepherd of a flock. Now, as a shepherd of the flock, the flock and what they did is they would go anywhere and everywhere that they could find fresh fields. Okay, so he would have led these sheep wherever they can find fresh fields. And for, so for 40 years, Moses wandered in the wilderness. Potentially, this very area we're talking about, wilderness of Shur, or areas much like it, knowing the hills, knowing most likely where all the wells are, where all the oases are, or at least how to find them, the signs, what to look for on the paths that he would have been able to lead the sheep to. Now, God has brought him back to the wilderness to lead his people like only one who's been in the wilderness could do. Do you see that? Like total either happenstance or just a coincidence, or maybe God is awesome. (laughs) Maybe God's super intentional in this. I mean, up to this date, think about Moses. Up to this date, Moses had not only committed first-degree murder, but he was wanted dead by the all-powerful Pharaoh. He fled into this vast wilderness to live out his days as a nobody. These are probably not his best days. Okay, he found some redemption in this new family that he found, but all those years of wandering the wilderness but with no one but sheep to talk to, it probably would change a person. And now, years later, he's back. Do you think any familiar feelings would come up? Do you think, except this time, he's not running because of something he did. He's running because he's responding to what God has done. So Moses, he knows how to find water. Moses can spot fresh fields. He knows the general routes to navigate through a wilderness. The people who are enslaved by the Egyptians do not. They have no idea where they are or where they are going. Now, quick pause. I grew up in Portland. And uh, when I was older, uh, I would often go up to the gorge to hike. Anyone been to the gorge to hike? There is incredible, like incredible hikes, incredible views. It's, it's awesome that Portland, just where it's located, you have the gorge, and one, you know, just 45 minutes away. I don't know another major city that can have that cool of area right off, um, right 40 minutes away. You got the mountain 40 minutes away. You got the beach an hour away. You got Ikea. I mean, what else do you need, right? So growing in Portland, I had the gorge a lot, so I'd go to the gorge, and there was kind of this more local famous hike called Angel's Rest. Has anyone done that? Angel's Rest? Pretty awesome, right? Okay, so there's a couple different ways to get up to Angel's Rest. Um, And when you get to it, the very top, if you haven't been there, it's absolutely stunning, right? You're at the very top. You can look out over the whole Columbia, look over on the Washington side. You just see this awesome landscape. Uh, It's really stunning. So one year, uh, I was in college, and I, that's where I met my wife, Christy, and we were like, let's do this a hike. It'd be awesome. It was a Saturday, I think. We're like, let's go on this hike. So we go on, and one of the ways you can get up there is kind of more steeper than the other one. It's a bunch of switchbacks, just back and forth, and you're going, and it's pretty tiring. And, you know, for, to be honest, like, she wanted to do it because it's like, oh, good conversation and a good workout. I wanted to get to the top and kiss her. 
I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was like, I'm going for a kiss at the top of Angel's Rest. Let's do this. So we ran, I was super tired, and we ran into this hiker who was coming down the way we were going up. And I was like, okay, cool. Hey, hey, man, hey, can I, can I ask you a question? Are we, like, are we close? Like, are we almost there? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just, just around the corner. Just go up here, and it's just around there, okay? So a few days later, we get to the, no, I'm just kidding. But it felt like, right, around the corner, literally a couple hours more of hiking, of up and down, back and forth, these switchbacks that were so exhausting, we finally got to the top, and I just loathed that person, right? I was like, why did you lie to me, right? It was so, like, just around the corner was so subjective to him, right? Like, if yes, if you were in a flying in a helicopter and you saw where we were, be like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's just around the corner, right? But when you're in it, like, we were tired, we were thirsty, we did not want to keep going, and I just wanted that kiss. And I couldn't get it. I did, eventually. Anyways, verse 22, okay? Keep that in mind. Just around the corner, like it feels like it's there, but you're just so in it that you're like, is this ever going to end? Verse 22, they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. After Israel's first great victory, they had their first great test. Even though the wilderness may have been familiar to Moses, it was still a vast, rugged, and sparsely populated land. So three days with that many people would have been plenty of time to empty any supplies they had, and anything they had brought with them would have been totally gone. So coming to the waters here, they assumed, oh, now we can refill what we have, right? And they were, of course, sorely disappointed. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which of course is translated as bitter. So, Israelites have some expectations going into the wilderness, going into what this means and this whole new way of life for God, and this now is the first failed expectation. The expectation could be that it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this hard. Like, look what God has done. He's brought us here. Why is this hard? Failed expectation here. It shouldn't be this hard. This great God who in his mighty ways saved us from Egypt and is bringing us to this promised land, surely this God wouldn't let us go thirsty. Like, surely not. So they ask, what shall we drink? Honestly, not a bad question, right? I think it's a very safe question. If you're in the desert, you're very thirsty to go to your leader and say, so what shall we drink? Like, totally fair. However, it was how the question came about. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? See, the, the, the sinfulness, it wasn't in the question, it was in the root of bitterness that the question came from. And honestly, I feel a bit for Moses, like assuming he's just as thirsty as the rest of the Israelites. He's just as wondering the same questions and that yet he gets the blame. In fact, he reminds me a bit of the guy on our hike, right? Like I was mad at him when really to him, he's like, yeah, technically it was around the corner. But Moses, he might know where the springs of fresh water are, but even if he's telling the people, it's just around the corner, no one's listening, no one cares because it doesn't fill their immediate needs. The people looked to Moses to satisfy their cravings, but it is God who supplies. And as Moses was said to be the mouthpiece of God, not trusting in Moses also is not trusting in God. They did not have what they expected. They failed to trust God to provide this. Has this not been the problem 
from the Garden of Eden, right? God is not what we expected. It's failed. We need to go our own way. Now, here's the kicker, and track with me. The ironic thing is the people asked for this, okay? When Moses and Aaron first convinced the elders of their mission from God, God gave them this instruction, Exodus chapter 3. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Okay? Now, in fact, to make it further ironic, two chapters later, this is what they actually say to Pharaoh. Chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Sounded great at the time, right? At the time, it's like, yeah, let's get out of here. Let's go eat food in the desert. We'll go worship our God, right? There wasn't anything about almost dying from the Egyptians, walking through sea on both sides of us, being half dead from thirst and starvation, In fact, they thought they were all but promised the world's first Izzy's. Like, that's what they wanted, right? They just wanted to show up and be like, oh, that is what God has for us. There's the promised land. By the way, what happened to Izzy's? Where are Izzy's anymore? Just not good? I don't know. Okay, anyways, let's move on. So second, failed expectation. We will worship out of our abundance, okay? God will provide everything. Surely, if God wanted our worship, he would provide for our every need so that we could do so perfectly. Surely, God would fill us up with everything we need then to worship him, right? The idea of coming to a God just in general or any kind of deity was full of this, of bringing our riches to kind of appease the deity. And so like, here you go, here's my offering to you. God, though, pay attention, showing a different way, What if here, what if God is showing that worship is more about being emptied of yourself to then be filled by God? What if worship is about showing up with nothing, showing up with absolutely nothing else to hold on to and just saying, God, you're it. If you don't fill me, I have nothing. Maybe this is the point, right? To be emptied of our expectations of what God should do. To be at a point of utter dependence upon God to provide or else we will die. This could be the greatest moment of worship. This point of emptying. And the people, I would say, are at the end of their rope. They're tired. They're thirsty. They can't drink this water. I would say they're at a point of utter dependence on God to provide. And you can just kind of hear the proverbial sigh of heaven, just like, oh, finally, (laughs) you know, like they finally get it, right? Verse 25, and he, being Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Like, add that to the list of just yet another nonchalant, incredible, and miraculous provisions. God's like, oh, yeah, there's a tree. Like, throw it in. It'll be great, you know? Now, the translation's kind of funny. So, log is what we get in the ESV. Piece of wood is in the NIV. The literal translation is tree, okay? So it's kind of tough to know, like, what is this exact thing? How big is it? That kind of thing. Scholars agree across the board it's pretty fruitless to figure out how this wood could have removed the salt or bitterness 
from the water and make it drinkable. Um, it kind of seems to fall under the don't bother category, kind of like how did the Nile turn to blood? How does a staff turn into a snake? Kind of just, let's just categorize it as illusions, Michael. Like, let's just keep it at that, okay? But here's where it gets interesting theologically, okay? And this is where my mind goes. I don't know if yours does, but I would encourage you all to go look into this, right? Like, hopefully, let me just say this, hopefully right now is not the most you've engaged with the scriptures all week. Like, hopefully this is not. Hopefully we're just coming and this is just another time that we're engaging with God's word, okay? But that's what's so beautiful about us all having the scriptures and being a community together. Don't just, don't just listen. Like, dive into this. Figure it out. Look at different translations. See what you think about it. But here's my take. This is obviously an incredible miracle, right? Again, people have tried to explain how this tree or this log has the ability to either mask the bitterness, so you don't actually taste it, so it was drinkable, um, or, or that it has some qualities that kind of makes the contaminated water sink to the bottom so that fresh water is on top and it's drinkable. And if that's all it is, awesome. Praise God for, like, being so scientific and just figuring it out for his people. Doesn't it kind of seem like there's more to this, though? Doesn't it kind of seem like that's it? Like it's just God brought him all this way three days to worship and sacrifice their God, and then he just gives them fresh water. Like it, it's awesome, but it kind of seems like is, shouldn't there be more? Now check this out. One word that gets passed over pretty easily, obviously the focus is the water and the log, but one is the word showed. Okay, the Lord showed him a log. Now I'm no language expert, okay, so again do your own research, but respected Hebrew scholars have written that the, word, the root word for showed there also is the same root word for teach or instruct, okay? It's also the same root word that we get for Torah, okay? Fascinating, huh? Which means instruction or law. So this is instruction or law, the Torah, is about to become the huge part of what it means to be an Israelite and literally spark the foundation of Judaism. Now, this might seem straight out of left field until you read the next line. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Okay, fascinating, right? If it had just said, and there God quenched their thirst, and they stood next to a Gatorade container, right? Like, that would be a cool miracle, but you have to ask, could God be setting up his people to not rely so much on their physical needs, but to see that God is, it wants to provide for everlasting needs, their eternal needs, if you were here for our John series, then you remember when we got to John chapter 4, the, the story of Jesus with a Samaritan woman at the well, okay? And, and we're not going to go super into it, but remember, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. She, she's asking, like, why are you here? He's talking to her. He knows all this stuff about her, but he says this, and this is why it makes me think that this is a precursor to what Jesus reveals to us. This is in uh, John chapter 4. Jesus says to this woman, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Like, it doesn't seem like it's ever actually about actual water for God's purposes. It seems to be what the water represents. To the Israelites right now in the desert, water was life. Like, literally, like, three days is scientifically the longest a human body can go without water. So they're at a point where, like, they are going to die. 
Water is literal life. God is literally making a point saying, hey, I've healed these waters to give you life, to show you that I'm also, if, you, if my people faithfully follow me, I will heal you to give you life everlasting. I've healed these waters, and I want to heal you. Okay, of course, then, theologically, this tree log, I mean, where, where does your mind go? My mind, how can you not think of the cross? Like, how can we not look forward to the cross, right? We're, we're that rugged cross that makes the bitter sweet, the sinner saved, the lost found. I mean, there's got to be songs about that, right? We have the scriptures, so we don't have to feel bad about going ahead and reading ahead of the story. So Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, you don't have to turn there, but let me read this to you. 8 verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. We're in the beginning of the story, but we get to look ahead and we get to look back. And God is setting up his people to receive his word the instructions lit, written on their hearts. And to do that, he needs to know what is in their hearts. I mean, if the law gets boiled down into the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, then surely there is going to be testing of these parts of people, right? It's going to be experiential. It's not just going to be an understanding. There will be a testing of the heart to know what is in the heart. So back to our passage today. We know the waters were incredible and potentially meaning so much more, especially years later when they look back at how God had guided them through the desert season in their life. We get to verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So from that point, from that point on, for these Israelites, listening to the voice of God, or otherwise translated the word of God, the words of God, doing what he sees as right, listening and obeying to his commands, keeping his way of life, instead of having the same fate as the hardened Egyptians, you will be healed by the Lord. Like, not necessarily a threat, like, follow me or else I'm going to rain locusts and frogs on you, um, but those plagues were super fresh in their mind right? They literally lived through it. We aren't told the Israelites it maybe experienced some of the stuff that the Egyptians experienced, but they were there. They were in Egypt when the plagues happened, and they saw the Egyptians lose faith in their tiny little gods compared to this great and mighty God of Israel. But instead of focusing on terror, this is what God declares. He doesn't say, I'm the God that, that ruled with a mighty hand and struck all the Egyptians. What he says, for I am the Lord, your healer your healer. Remember God's point at, at Marah, just like I healed the waters, I will heal my people. What does Jesus say years later in, in the gospel of Mark chapter 2? He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. 
I came to heal. And to capitalize on this moment that this healing God was different than the tyrant Pharaoh who they were used to, God provides extravagantly. Verse 27, to end our chapter. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12, right? 12 springs, a whole spring per tribe of Israel. 12 tribes, 12 watering holes, a ton of shade for them. 70 usually representing completeness, right? God being the healer that provides extravagantly. Like you don't have to even fight over it. I'm going to give you more than you could ever think about. Can you imagine being the Israelites? Right? You're, you're tri- even though you're in 12 tribes, you're fractioned because you've been enslaved in Egypt and you don't, still don't quite know, even though you know you have this heritage, right? And you show up in the wilderness, in the desert, and you go around the corner when you're so bitter, you don't know, and you see a whole, you see 12. You see 12 springs, one for each of you. Do you think that would feel intentional? Do you feel like that would feel like, man, God might be real? <laughs> this actually might be a thing. The overabundance of God is incredible and also just who God is and what he has for his people. So we get to the end of chapter 15. We end this kind of first real test of God's people in the desert. And how would you rate them? Like scale one to 10, how'd they do? You know, it's, I don't know, six six and a half, (laughs) you know, a little bit of bitterness, right? It's only the beginning for them. We're going to learn a lot about human nature over the next couple weeks of what happens. But now think about it, scale of one to ten, like, how are you doing on testing this week? How are you doing in the desert season of life where there's bitterness and there's hardship? This, this, it shouldn't be this hard, right? How are you doing with failed expectations of what it meant to follow God and what God should do in our lives, and he hasn't yet? Like, let's be contemplative for a minute, because that's the beauty of looking back on Exodus and being able to then say, okay, that, that means something for us today. Are we seeking the living water that comes only from God himself, or are we finding ourselves bitter asking God why his testings feel more like torture than healing? Just think about that. Does it feel like God's torturing you? Does it feel like God's healing you? Maybe those are the same thing. Right? We all have desert seasons. Maybe you're in one right now. It kind of feels like literally our entire world just went through one and has every, there's these cycles, right? Circumstances are real. Feelings are so real. Feelings and emotions are so important to who we are as humans, but the question remains the same. Are we diligently listening to the voice of the Lord our God, doing that which is right in His eyes, listening and obeying His commandments? It's hard. It's hard to do, and it's the call of the community of God even today. Like, this doesn't mitigate what you and I are going through, but we need to move into community, seek reconciliation and humility where it's needed to be a family of God. What we all need to hear this morning is our God is a healer. We all need to heal from something. Addiction, hurts, pains, lies, ways we are hurting others, ways we are spreading lies. Like the human condition, it's opposite to what we just read. The bent is for humans to listen to our own voice, do what's right in our own eyes, listening and obeying whatever we want that meets our needs and desires. 
but God's people were not mercenaries for hire to whatever God will satisfy. We follow Yahweh the healer. We seek the living water, not just what will satisfy in the moment. We are kingdom-minded people seeking something so much bigger than ourselves and our own satisfaction, right? In fact, we should refuse to be satisfied with anything less than the kingdom here and now, and that should be our praise and worship. That's what we need to be crying out to God. Say, God, we are weary, we are burdened, we are at the waters, empty of ourselves and our expectations, desperate for the healer. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the cry. That is the praise and worship today. And I want to end with a proverb that we all need to commit to memory. Some of you probably have before, but just recommit it to memory. We need to have this on our lips all the time. I want to speak this over. I want to end. I want to praise and worship our king today. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. That, the heart of that is so beautiful. We need to be saying that over and over, learning from the Israelites learning for that bitterness to not take root, that our God is so invested in our lives, that our God is here to heal us and be with us. And that's why we get to respond. That's why we always put the slide, because we just want to have this idea where we, we just have this rubric of saying, God, we're here. We want to sing praises to you. We want to pray, have this access to you in prayer. And we know there's power in that through the Spirit. And we get to give, not out of abundance, not out because we're so filled up that we just have so much to give out. We do have abundance, but we give because we're compelled by love and generosity. We're compelled by saying, how can we serve? What can we give? How can we love our city and our surrounding neighborhood? And we get to receive communion. We get to go to the table where Jesus says, hey, remember, I, I want to give you the water where you will never thirst again. It'll spring up in you an everlasting well. Not just water for the moment, but something I have for you forever. So when you drink of this cup, when you eat of this bread, remember my sacrifice. Remember that I, I did it for you. That you can trust in me that I've healed you. I've healed your sin. I've healed your heart. If you would just follow me. Let me pray for you. Let's go and worship our King.